my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. When we first got to MTV, you actually were the guy who inspired us to do animated logos i said well what are we going to do in between the videos and the vjs are we going to do jingles and you went oh no we can't do jingles and i said uh well what, what do we do he said how about this imagine it's like a picture of a cow you know a drawn cow i said yeah he said and all of a sudden an axe comes down and cuts the cow's head off and it falls to the ground and you see the veins coming out and the blood spurting out and the cow vomits, and in the vomit is the logo. I went, oh my God, I can do anything I want. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and this is Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing where we explore the insights side of marketing, the creative side, and how they come together to create the truly remarkable ideas and successes. Today on this episode, we have someone who is a true iconoclast. Some might even call him a cranky creative genius, Fred Cyber. Welcome, Fred. Thanks, Bob. Fred and I were part of the birth of MTV. We're at the first 24-hour-a-day movie pay service, the movie channel. Before that, playing around with the concept of making a channel the thing instead of just letting the show set the image of the network. Fred and I also shared Roots and Radio as our start. Fred gets most of the credit for the original groundbreaking look and feel of MTV. He also helped Jerry Laybourne when she created the first tween network, which is Nickelodeon. I can still remember when he pitched the brand image for Nickelodeon, and it was like, orange? That's it? Orange? <laughs> and of course, all these years later, it was as impactful as the look of MTV. 
Fred went on to do so much more in branding, network creative, and a major career and a major influence in animation from his time as the head of Hanna-Barbera to his own Frederator. He also discovered and developed some great talent, one of his superpowers. We're here to get into all that and more. But first, Fred, we're going to do you in 60 seconds. Just give us quick reactions just to warm us up. So, Fred, do you prefer cats or dogs? Dogs. Hoodies or button-downs? Button-downs. Powerpuff Girls or Johnny Bravo? Oh, definitely Powerpuff Girls. Mets or Yankees? Yankees. Martha Quinn or Nina Blackwood? Martha. Cup or Cone? Cone. Disney or Hanna-Barbera? Hanna-Barbera, for sure. It's about to get harder. (laughs) What's your favorite city? New York City. Favorite cartoon? Bugs Bunny. What would you eat for your last meal? Probably the same thing I eat for my first meal, some yogurt and some chicken. And you've always eaten that since I've known you. Smartest person you know? Bob Pittman. Oh, right. (laughs) Childhood hero? That's tough, too. I don't know. My parents, I guess. First job? Working in my parents' pharmacy. Favorite book? Dashiell Hammett, anything that he wrote. Quote to live by? Something by Winston Churchill about success is after a lot of failures. Worst fad or fashion trend you've participated in? Probably my khakis and white button-down shirts. You've never changed. God bless you. Who would play you in a movie? Everyone says that I look like the late Harold Ramis. What uh, would be the title of your memoir? He tried really hard. (laughs) Proudest professional achievement? There's nothing I've ever done that I didn't have a great time doing it. So how about this? Creating the catalog for a jazz label called Mosaic Records. God bless you. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? A mixture of vanilla and chocolate. Yogurt flavor? Plain. Best live concert? B.B. King at the Fillmore East. Done. Excellent. That was, that was a good set of questions. Before we go back to your beginnings, let's talk about people, because I do think this is one of your superpowers. Let's talk about people who you hired, mentored, or helped develop. Seth MacFarlane from Family Guy fame, Judy McGrath, who went on to be CEO of MTV Networks, who, by the way, has been here. She said the interview went as... What music do you like? She said somebody, and you said wrong. And the rest of the time you talked, and she got the job. Exactly. She said Bruce Springsteen, and I said wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Anne Foley, who helped build Showtime programming and headed that. Well, you developed her as talent. Well, we all did. We all did. But, you know, you've had a really great track record. How do you spot talent? You know, it's a really mystical process. When you asked me to come and talk to you about working with you, I said, you know, I I only watch TV. I don't make it. And you said, come come talk to me anyway. And we had a quick cup of coffee, like at the Four Seasons or something like that. And I didn't think another thing about it until you called and said, you're hired. And I was like, I wonder why. And I think that almost everybody that I've met with, it's that same kind of process. Basically, it's having a conversation with somebody and go, you know, I just want to spend more time with them. And it really comes down to, did they say something or did we have a dialogue that made me go, boy, I would really like to help this person. So how do you empower them to develop breakthrough, not ordinary ideas? What I feel like I've done is, one, let people know that my major goal at work is to have fun because I think you can make money from having fun. The second thing is to provide structure in a way that doesn't seem overly structured. You know, in my TV days, it was making sure that spots were 30 seconds and not a second longer or shorter. When you and some of our other colleagues would say, it doesn't matter how long they are. I'm like, I don't know, discipline seems like a good idea. Or when we made uh, cartoons to begin with, and I was in love with Looney Tunes, I said, well, let's make them the same length as Looney Tunes. They said, why? I said, because Looney Tunes are the greatest cartoons ever made. What I found over the years is that by giving people structure and almost nothing else other than sort of a philosophy of where you'd like them to go, if they don't want to be there, they leave. They quit. They don't vibe with you one way or the other. And if they do, they've sort of accepted the structures and the strictures. And as long as I don't overnote them, in our business, it's all about the notes that you give and all that type of stuff. In the cartoon business, I just would say to people, well, what cartoon do you really want to make? If you have one you really want to make, we'll do it. And if you tell me you have 50 you want to make, I don't want to do it. It means you don't care about anything. So I'm just looking for people who care about something 
when you were talking about Judy and I asked her who she liked and she said Bruce and I said wrong because I, I don't have a good thing about Bruce. The fact that she cared. You know, the Bruce haters are coming after you right now. Yeah, I, I, believe me, they've been coming after me my whole life. The fact that she cared meant all the difference to me in the world, not that I agreed. Right. You've got these people. How would you describe your coaching technique, getting the best out of people? I ask them to tell me what they want to do. The way that I sort of think about it is there's a big circle, a ball, and everything in it, in that ball, is what I love. And then they have their own circle and their own ball, and it's everything that they love. And I said, why don't we just, like, find the places where we touch, just where we kiss? And then we're both going to be really, really happy. And the only thing I want is, like, for us all to be happy. What we've been able to do for a living over our lifetime is kind of magical in that I think that what I've done my whole life is make people happy. The people that I work with want people to be in love with the work that they do because people are really passionate about their work. I never hired anybody who actually knew what they were doing that had done it before. That was one of our hallmarks at MTV. We had these creative promo departments. Once people came in and started saying, well, I worked on promos over here, like I didn't want to hire them. If they were a wonderful writer, that was great. If they were a wonderful director, that was great. One of the earliest people I hired had just come out of film school and his first job was cutting negatives, film negatives at a porno place. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, like whatever. So let's jump back a little bit. Mm -hmm. I want to get some insights from your youth about you. Your parents were both pharmacists, owned the pharmacy in Long Island. True. You worked there and you were going to Columbia to become a pharmacist. Yeah. Anything in that? What does that tell us about you? I, I have no idea other than that I was very influenced by my parents. Everyone in my family are pretty much scientists. There's biochemists, there's neurosurgeons, there's other pharmacists, chemists. And I decided at six I was going to be a chemist. And, you know, I would blow up the basement with, you know, experiments and all that type of stuff. But when I was 12, a lightning bolt struck that it had changed my life. It's like this, you know, the Beatles movie that's just come out yesterday. Yeah. It was like that. And in fact, it was the Beatles. It was the day they went on Ed Sullivan and my life changed. I went and bought a guitar, taught myself guitar. I was already a musician. I started bands. I did all the things that everybody did, but I was a chemist and I was a science math kid and I went to college for that. And I'm in a zoology class one day where, you know, we had been dissecting frogs. Great. And the next week we're going to dissect rats. So I get there and all the rats are alive. And the first thing the zoology teacher said is, now I'll show you how to kill the rat before you dissect it. And I looked at my lab partner and I said, you know, I like the Beatles more than this. And I walked out and I walked right to the college radio station. My path changed instantly. So your parents, who are the pharmacists, what do they say? They say, oh, great, Fred, you're leaving this wonderful career to go be a radio something. We did not have a decent conversation for the next 10 years, actually. Really? Yeah, they were very, very upset. When they became less upset is when I went to work in radio and I was forced to wear a suit to work and they thought, oh, it'll all be okay. Well, actually, just to make you feel better, my parents told me for the first 10 years I was working, get out of radio. Exactly. That's a crazy business. <laughs> Go back to college, finish college, be a normal kid. And then about in my 30s sometime, they said, gosh, I sure I'm glad you didn't listen to us. Exactly. Uh, well, I finally said to my folks, I'm doing everything you taught me, all the ways you taught me to do it. I just took my own path in doing it, and they finally sort of calmed down. And even though pretty much for my entire career, until I started making cartoons, they had no idea what I did for a living. After you're leaving this possible career as a pharmacist, you eventually wound up as the promotions director at a country music station. Yep. WHN in New York. Yep. One of your great supporters who I'd worked with and who I loved dearly, Dale Pond, recommended you to me pre-MTV. It was in the early days of pay TV. You came over to join us in the cable revolution Yeah, at the beginning of the cable networks phase. Why did you make that jump? Well, you know, this is going to sound flattering. I did it completely because of you. Dale had left the country music radio station and left me alone. And the guy I was working for at that time in radio, I had no respect for whatsoever. Pretty much anything I did, he told me it wasn't any good. So you called me one day. You said, you want to be in television? No. You said, okay, come have coffee with me. I went to Dale's files and he had files on everyone in the business. And there was one article about you, about your promotion at WNBC. Uh, we're WNBC and we're going to make you rich. And I thought to myself, you know, this guy is younger than me and I've heard of him. So that's, you know, one check. So we go, we have the coffee and I walk out and I called my best friend and I said, 
this guy that I just talked to is so much smarter than my boss in radio. He goes, well, what do you think about that? I said, well, here's what Dale taught me. Doesn't matter what the job is, work for the smartest person you can find. And at the time, you were the smartest person I could find. No, that's, that's what that's, got me that's into flattering. television. That's flattering. So any career lessons in that for the folks listening? Go work for the person, not the job? I tell people that all the time. Working for smart people has always worked. Working for Ted Turner, working for Scott Sasso, working for you. I would go in at ground level at a job, and I always came out at the top floor. And then I'd go off on my own for a while. And then when I screwed that up, I'd go back you know, to a job. <laughs> we started experimenting with network branding with the Movie Channel, although the Movie Channel has been lost in history. Yes. There was really some pioneering work done there. Mm -hmm. How would you describe that? I mean, that was very early, and we were about the only people that were yeah. doing that approach to let's make the network the star, not the program the star. Yeah. In 1980, when we started together, May 8th, 1980. Wow, what a memory. Yeah. The average home in America had two channels of television. I lived in New York City, so we had seven, but, you know, the average home had two. However, in the same town that had seven TV stations, there were about 70, 75 radio stations. And over the 25, 30 years before, radio had learned to compete because they only each had a sliver of the thing. And what that effectively came out to is they each had personalities. You and I had either the benefit or the curse of having come out of that business where we had to compete like crazy at a television station. They just turn on one light switch and the other switch opens a hole in the ceiling and money drops on their head because <laughs> it was just easy to make money in television. So we started from the premise that you had to have a personality. It turned out that in television, that was called an innovation. And by the way, we were probably about 30 years too soon. Yeah. But indeed, that was the demise of TV as we know it when the loyalty was to the program, not the network. When you asked me to come back and work on Nickelodeon, there were only 30 cable networks, which we thought was amazing, and that Nickelodeon was number 30. <laughs> and people are right. like, what do you mean only 30? What, what? <laughs> you know? And, and, the, said, and there are 30. I have to tell you, at MTV time, I was so freaked out that there were 30 that the resultant work came out because I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, what are we going to do to stand out? What are we going to do to stand out? And a lot of it just came out of the panic of getting lost in the mush. So let's move on to starting MTV. The board would not approve the idea, but <laughs> I did get us a budget to develop it. In that period, did you ever think we weren't going to get approval to launch MTV? Well, how did you believe in it? Truth be told, when you first told me about it, I thought it was the dumbest idea in the world because I was a music guy and I had seen, you know, a few crummy music videos. And I hadn't really thought about it too much. And then luckily somebody played me a music video that made, you know, the little light go off. I don't know whether it was blind faith or I was too naive to know that you had to have faith. Like you told me it was going to happen. So I believed you. Was it youth? Totally. Totally. I was just talking with Alan Goodman, my soon-to-be partner at that point. And he said, you know, we didn't really know it was going to happen. But you looked at all the other people that were around you and it just had to happen. <laughs> I think that's really true. Well, you know, we went to the head of Warner Communications and American Express that owned the joint venture, Warner MX, yep. where we, we got started. And we got a meeting with Steve Ross, who is the CEO of, of Warner, along with his deputies, David Horowitz, et cetera. And we got Jim Robinson and his deputy, Lou Gershner, from American Express. I don't know if you remember, but we were worried that when we showed these videos, people from American Express go, what? Yeah, That's yeah, yeah, exactly. So he said, let's find the tamest one. Yeah. Mind. I think we found Olivia Newton-John <laughs> as the video to talk about the launch of, of MTV. We, I don't know if you remember, but in the meeting, they said, do we have to play that kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. Implying Olivia Newton-John was too it's hard. Too racy, but, right? <laughs> but uh, to their credit, Jim Robinson's the first one to say, okay, I'm in for my half. How about uh, you, Steve? So awesome. We lucked out. Let's go to the launch of MTV mm -hmm. and talk about some of the things that really, I think, still stand out today. The logo. Yeah. We had no money for a logo. No. I was probably the cheapest man in the world and had expectations you could create a lot out of nothing. Well, we and had startup budgets. We I were mean, really startup budgets, yeah. not like venture capital guys. Well, again, here's the metric I use. A guy comes to see me for a job in the promo department from CBS Channel 2 in New York. And I said, how much do you get paid? And he was getting paid twice as much as I was. That was the metric. We all earned intern wages. 
if somebody had a dollar and we were asking them to spend 10 cents, we knew they'd be bad. Completely. We found people that had a penny and we gave them the dime. They thought they had all the money I tell in the that world. to people all the time. Absolutely. Just hold on a second because we've got so much more to talk about. We'll be back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what, do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know... Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with Fred Seibert. So talk about the logo. You set out. You got the mission. You and I had these yep. discussions. I naively said, we'll do our own Star Wars logo because yeah. everybody has a Star Wars logo and you go to Bob. Ours will look cheap. Yeah. You said, look. If we do something no one's ever seen before, they won't know it's cheap. Exactly. So tell me about the logo. Well, the logo itself actually came about because I was too scared to go to someone famous. I wanted to go to Milton Glaser, who's one of the most famous graphic designers of the last 50 years. And I was like, oh, well, he's going to be really expensive. And oh, he'll get all the credit. And I wanted a little credit, you know, at least. So my childhood friend who I've known since I'm four years old, a guy named Frank Olinsky had just started a little design firm behind a Tai Chi studio above Bigelow Chemists on sixth Avenue. And Frank had been the guy, cause he's a year older than me who had always introduced me to every new rock band. He introduced me to the monkeys. He introduced me to the mothers of invention, to the who, to Jeff Beck. 
And I knew that Frank loved music, so I go down to his little Tai Chi studio place, and I go, will you guys design a logo for this you know, rock channel we're starting? And they were like, yes. And they didn't ask me anything. They didn't ask me how much they were going to get paid or anything like that. And this was right after you sent out the first memo in June of 1980. And boy, do I wish I had that memo. So for a year, they designed logos. And I just rejected everything. Probably 500 designs. So finally, they come in the office one day. We're actually going to go on the air soon, right? And we still don't have anything. And they bring a pile, and I'm like, no, no, I'm going through the whole pile. And at the bottom of the pile is a piece of tracing paper. Remember that, you know, the paper you could see through. And it was all wrinkled. And they had flattened it out. It was just like a a sketched TV. I went, okay, that's the one. I can see Frank, like, growling, kind of. He and I now disagree, but what I had heard is that the woman, there's three partners, and one of them wasn't really a designer. She was a um, production manager, and she had done it. And Frank saw it and hated it and threw it in the garbage. She fished it out and put it at the bottom of the pile. He says that's not true, but, you know, may, who knows? It makes for a good story. It was raised for a good story. The only reason I said yes is that Dale had taught me one lesson about design. You need to dominate the space. And that big blocky M was the only thing they showed that when you put it on a TV screen, filled the whole screen. I'm like, okay, we dominate the space. And in a world of 30 channels. And in a day when the screen was square. Exactly right. So then I go, oh, you know, we need official colors. You know, a logo is supposed to be a thing that you make and it never changes. So they come to my office with about 10 different boards. Everything was on boards in those days. And then a little board where Frank had illustrated 10 or 12 of them on acrylic overlays. So I put all of the boards up on my pegboard and couldn't decide. And this went on literally for like weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, we had to do something. And I looked at them. I'm just staring at all of them. They were all like really kind of cool. And I said, why don't we just use them all at once all the time? I don't know who I was talking to. And I was like, what? I said, well, we're television. We move. Shouldn't the logo move? And to be honest with you, that was my first real revelation that I was in television. That we had come up with an idea that only worked in television. Right. The other thing you did, when you did those promos, the great stuff, you laid the music bed down first. Yeah. And cut to the music. And everybody else in that era, people forget this. They don't realize that was an innovation, that everybody else did the video first and then rolled some music under it. So I got that all from Dale. I was an audio guy, and I was a really good audio guy. I was a mixer and all that, an engineer. And when we started making our first radio spots, we would film country music stars. And then he said, well, go to the audio studio and cut the audio track And I went, well, the video guy tells me, no, you have to first do the picture. And then he goes, Fred, we own the audio studio. It's free. (laughs) If you get it right in the audio studio, then the $300 an hour video studio will go much faster. By the time we got to MTV, I realized that he was absolutely right. I was hiring basically kids, you know, 21, you know, just out of school. And we didn't have any money. Now, fast forward 20 years. I go to MTV one day. I'm running their online business for a little while. And I go, who's the promo department now? And they tell me. And I go down and I introduce myself to a couple of people. And they went, you. What? what? You're the one. Go, well, what are you talking about? And they said, they make us do the audio first. We're film people. Like, why? <laughs> so 20 years later, they were still doing it. But boy, what it did is it brought Rhythm. And energy. It brought the backbeat of rock and roll into those spots. Everything was beat. You know, I'm in radio. Yep. I love audio. People don't realize how much of your emotion is not driven by what you're looking at. It's it's what you're hearing. I used to joke all the time that we could make the spots black and they would have the same effect. Right. Well, it's horror film. Yeah. You go in the next room, listen to it, it still scares you. <laughs> exactly. Turn off the sound. It's not very scary. So let me, I'm not going to spend all of our time on MTV, but I want to hit one other thing here. The cable operators wanted us to pay them. As you say, we had intern wages and no money. <laughs> so our good friend Mayo Stunts, who actually had a Harvard MBA, said we should use consumer pull. 
Like, what the hell's consumer pull? And he goes, we'll get the consumer to demand it. Mm-hmm. Great. So you and Tom Preston came over to my apartment one night to show me a cable brat spot. Mm-hmm. Embedded in the cable brats was this memorable line, I want my MTV. The actual spot said, they grew up with rock and roll, they grew up with television, now they want their MTV. George Lois, who never saw something that he couldn't copy, had already copied a famous TV commercial from the 50s called I Want My Mapo for a really horrendous tasting oatmeal oatmeal kind of Exactly. He had sports stars like Mickey Mantle and Joe Namath crying like, I want my Mapo. And he redid it with Mick Jagger and, you know, whoever, David Bowie and Pete Townsend and all that type of stuff. And they showed us this spot. So we went and we pitched it to you. I think you saw the feeling of it right away. I remember going into our boss's office and saying, but HBO spending $10 million a year in advertising goes, you're lucky you have two. Somehow or other, the people in the media business didn't actually believe in advertising. It was the you know, weirdest thing. And so I went to Dale. I said, look, we only have $2 million. Dale was this brilliant hybrid of a strategist and a creative guy. And as a strategist, what he understood is that we had no money to spend on this ad. And he did an incredible data dump of where could MTV be put on against how much media cost in that particular market. And he did three or four or five cross tabs to figure out the most likely places that if we put on these spots, we'd have an impact that that we would get people calling and making the cable operators insane. And that's exactly what happened. He literally took what Mayo said and put on the beginning of the spot. He had Pete Townsend doing it. America demand your MTV. Right. And people go, I want my MTV. I want my MTV. And then Pete Townsend again with a telephone going, Call your cable operator and say, I want my, and God knows, I think we made customer representatives from all over America crazy within four weeks. I had a guy stop me at a cable show, cable operator, and said, I hate you. And I go, why why do you hate me? And he goes, because my phone rings all day with those people saying, I want my MTV. I can't get any work done. Demand is bad. We reverse that demand curve. And by the way, I just to sort of flip it a couple of years, one of the major cable operators decided they were going to take MTV off the air. And you called up and you said, we need new spots. And I went, what's that? You said, we have to get people to keep them from turning off MTV. And we went and filmed a lot of rock stars half in shadow and all in black and white going, they're trying to take away your MTV. And we put those on the air and... Lo and behold, they did not cancel our channels. God bless them. So let's jump to Jerry Layborn. Yeah. Let's jump to Nickelodeon. You mentioned Nickelodeon was number 30. Yep. It was a toddler's channel. Yep. Invented to help Time Warner Cable get some cable franchises. It's exactly the way that Netflix uses kids on their service now. It is a come on that no family can resist. And for us, had basically no value. Exactly. So we have this idea. We're going to turn it into a tween channel. Actually, Jerry said this is Great. She's an old school teacher. I got a great idea. We relaunched it. To that point, only MTV had an image as a network. And your mission, you need to do with Nickelodeon what we did with MTV. How on earth did you end up with Orange? After the MTV logo thing, which was really the most visible manifestation of the creative work, designers came out of the woodwork wanting to work with us. We found somebody up in Boston, a guy called Tom Corey and his partner, Scott Nash. We asked them to come up with some ideas for logos. So they came up with a bunch of things and all of them were pretty standard logos. Truth be told, I picked a really standard one. We were about to go in and pitch it when Alan said, you know, our thing is this moving logo and they have one here. Why didn't we pick that? I said, well, it's orange. It's only one color. And so we called Tom and we go, how come like orange? Like you said, he goes, well, you know, this is the color, it's a Pantone 021, and it is not found in nature. Anything we put it on, it will stand out from that. So we go in to pitch it to Jerry and her team, and she's like, but you're the MTV guys. How come we don't get lots of colors? And I think you said probably something similar, and 
we just tap I think danced. I said orange. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I think we just tap danced really hard. And at that point, you were willing to give us our heads. And the thing that was really brilliant about their solution is that it wasn't an orange logo. It was white type that was always exactly the same. One of the key elements of a logo is you have to have something that is fixed. But the orange thing ended up being thousands of different shapes around it. And sometimes they were real shapes like a boy riding a bicycle or a girl's head. And sometimes it was just an abstract design, a blob, a splat, a color burst, you know, or something like that. And we realized that we could have fun using it. The thing about designers is they hate the work that anyone else has done. So you give them a logo that somebody else designed, the first thing they're going to want to do is change it. And what we did with MTV is basically the M became a canvas for artists so that any artist could put their own imprint on it and not feel like it wasn't theirs. And the shape thing at Nickelodeon gave every artist a chance to be themselves. And it worked. We wanted these networks to feel like a human. We yes. wanted to have a personality. Yes. So let's jump. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Fred Seibert, maybe 2.0. Let's go to Fred Seibert 3.0, animation. Yeah. You went on to be president of Hanna-Barbera. You had your own animation studio. You became this living expert on animation. How in the hell did you get interested in animation? Where did that come from? Well, I always loved cartoons as a kid. The exact same way that several years later I fell in love with rock and roll. I remember buying a Bugs Bunny t-shirt when I was in college and thinking it was the coolest thing, you know, in the world. When we first got to MTV, you actually were the guy who inspired us to do animated logos. I said, well, what are we going to do in between the videos and the VJs? I said, are we going to do jingles? And you went, oh, no, we can't do jingles. And I said, uh, what, what do we do? You said, how about this? Imagine it's like a picture of a cow, you know, a drawn cow. I said, Yeah. And he said, and all of a sudden, an axe comes down and cuts the cow's head off, and it falls to the ground, and you see the veins coming out and the blood spurting out, and the cow vomits, and in the vomit is the logo. I went, oh, my God, I can do anything I want. (laughs) This was the most exciting moment of my life, and we started hiring animators to do all that stuff. So in that process, I started talking to lots of people who did animation. I'm sort of a curious guy, and I just asked them a million questions. And a few of them started telling me how the cartoon business worked. So I started reading books about the history of the cartoon business. So one day Nickelodeon comes to me, takes me to breakfast and said, you know, we've been licensing all of our programming. I said, yeah. They said, you know, it's getting really expensive because the more viewers we get, the more they want to charge us. And, you know, our most popular cartoon is this thing from England called Danger Mouse we think we are going to pay enough that we ought to start thinking about making our own. I said, oh, great. And they said, what should we do? Silence. I go, what? They said, well, what do you think we should do for cartoons? I said, why are you asking me? They said, well, you do our animation. I said, well, one, I don't animate anything. And two, I essentially take your logo and wiggle it for 10 seconds, please. I said, well, you're the only person I know. I said, okay, well, I think you should make cartoons the way Looney Tunes did. And I just start improvising. And they didn't want to do it the way that I wanted to do it. And, you know, me, like, if they don't take my idea, I get really upset. And as a consultant, they never quite take your idea. So uh, long story short, I helped them make a deal on a library of cartoons. And I wanted a bonus. And they wouldn't give me the bonus. And I got so mad that I just started complaining to everybody. And one of those people I complained to was Scott Sassa, the president of Turner entertainment. He said, how did you do that deal? You make logos. I said, well, yeah, but it was logical. I did X, Y, and Z, you know, all that type of stuff. Fine. And they were Hanna-Barbera cartoons. 18 months later, he calls me up and he said, hey, you know, we just bought Hanna-Barbera. I said, yeah, I heard. I read in the paper. He goes, why don't you come run Hanna-Barbera? I'm like, huh? What? And I said, look, I don't know anything about cartoons. He goes, don't worry about it. It's a disaster there. You can't go wrong. If you don't make a hit, they haven't had a hit since the Smurfs. Nobody will blame you. And if you do have a hit, everyone will think you're a genius. So here was the kicker. I literally look at my watch, and on my watch are four Hanna-Barbera characters, completely by coincidence. It's 10.35 in the morning. I said, I have 90 days. I have to wind down the agencies. We'll wait. 
the first time I walk in the Hanna-Barbera building, I'm president of the company. I made two cartoons, full series, $10 million, disasters. They fail like immediately. Named what? Two Stupid Dogs and SWAT Cats, the Radical Squadron. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I go back to Ted Turner. I go, Ted, I know I'm out of budget, but I need another $10 million. He goes, what? I said, well, you know, I, I got to get you some hits. I need another $10 million. He said, what are you going to do with the $10 million? I said, I'm going to make 48 short cartoons. He goes, well, you just had two failures. Like, what makes you think you're going to work? I said, Ted, if I do something 48 times, don't you think I'll do something right? And, you know, the natural entrepreneur in Ted was like, you're right. Go for it. And that was that. And, and, and the hits were? Powerpuff Girls, Dexter's Laboratory, Johnny Bravo, Courage the Cowardly Dog, Cow and Chicken, and I Am Weasel. So you're at Hanna-Barbera. You now have a hit. Yep. Now you begin to think you're a animator? Actually, to be honest with you, I figured that animation was sort of a sideline that I was going to do for those years, and that was going to be it. Ted announces one day that he's selling the company, and he's selling it to Time Warner. I'm one of those guys that runs around the edge of the field to get to the goal. Like, I can't run through the scrum. And Warner Brothers was a scrum, and it just wasn't the right fit for me. And I figured I'd come back to New York and go back to doing the things that I had done in TV somehow. I didn't know how. Somewhere between Judy McGrath, Herb Scannell, who was running Nickelodeon, and Tom Freston, who was running MTV Networks, they said, hey, well, why don't you come back and be a consultant? I said, I'm never going to be a consultant again. But I got to make things. Like, I'm a maker. They said, okay, well, you can make cartoons for Nickelodeon as long as you come and consult with us once a month. I'm like, okay, I could do that. Then I don't care if you listen to my ideas. And I started Frederator, you know, in 1998 and rest is history. history. Yeah. So this is a podcast about math and magic. Yep. How do you use both? I didn't know what to do for MTV because I was the head of promo, but we had no shows. And in television, promos are... Watch Bill Cosby in a very special episode, Thursday at 8. We didn't have that. I remember actually going out with Dale, and we go out to the beach in Amagansett, and I just said, walk with me. And we walked back and forth on the beach for five or six hours while I tried to figure out what the promo should be. And I realized that the problem that MTV had was twofold. One is nobody knew what the hell it was. And so telling them to watch this or watch that wasn't going to be very useful. So I realized I had to tell them a story. But I also realized something else that we had learned in radio, which is at the end of every song, people have a reason to tune away. So that meant in MTV, every three minutes, people could leave. The ratings lesson I had learned was time spent listening was more important than how many people listen. Because if you get somebody to listen for 15 minutes for a few songs and through the commercial, you made more money. And if they listened that long, more people were going to listen. So I realized that at MTV, our job was actually not be cool. We knew how to be cool. Not be crazy and creative, though we were going to do that anyway. Not tell people what time the shows were on. It was to get them to listen longer, time spent viewing. So fast forward, Nickelodeon. One of the great things about Jerry is she was very research crazy. And she said, we don't understand why no one watches as you remember, one show had a rating and everything else had hash marks, basically zero. And I said, well, what do you know? She said, well, here's what we know. We can't figure it out. 44% of everyone who has cable tunes into Nickelodeon once a week and stays for less than six minutes. I said, oh, okay, so that's the problem to solve. She said, what do you mean? I said, we just have to get them watching longer. We go back and we work out a promotional clock because the way Nickelodeon did it, it was like nuts. It was well, if we have a minute here, we'll put a promo. And if there's not another minute for two hours, then we'll do it. There was no organization. And as you well know, with media, a dependable, organized wheel makes all the difference. So I go back to Jerry to the next meeting. I said, Jerry, I found $25 million for you to market. Said, what, what are you talking about? I said, well, the whole deal is this time spent viewing thing. We worked out a clock, and there's going to be two minutes of promos an hour, and they're going to be distributed this way. We'll have to recut some of the shows, but we, we have no new shows. So we have to do that. She said, well, where's the $25 million come in? I said, well, your rate for your spots are $500 a piece, and if you add up how many there are over the course of a year, it's $25 million. 
and we're going to use them like an ad campaign, not like a television channel. We have a story to tell. I don't care about your shows. <laughs> the only thing I care about is your kids that watch them and the story that we are telling them. I remember having a fight with my accountant at MTV at the time and him screaming about how much money you were giving us. And I said, would it surprise you to know that I not only know how much every second of video costs, but I can tell you how many times that second will run in a year? Fast forward, he's my CFO now. We've been friends ever since because counting, Dale Pond taught me another lesson, when in doubt, count. And counting together with a creative approach makes for, as you say here, math and magic. I almost want to end the show on that. It's such, <laughs> such a great way to do it. I want to ask you just a couple of more sure. things, though. We're talking about creativity. Talk to me about the role of the old dogs like us and creativity. We sort of know the power of young, fresh thinking. We were that once upon a time. Do you think there is a role, or is this a young person's game? I think there's always a role for anybody gives a crap one way or the other. I decided a long time ago that I have three rules for myself that, you know, have not always made me wealthy, but they worked out really nicely, which is my first rule is I want to have a good time. My second rule is I want to make some money. And my third rule is I want to stand the people that I work with. And I figure at any point, if I get two of those things, like I'm onto something. There was a period of time where I was still fresh enough to that work that we had done in the early 80s that when I would meet with a new team of people, I'd go, well, you know, what we did at MTV was this, and what we did at Nickelodeon was that. And I realized I was starting to be the get-off-your-lawn guy, <laughs> you know. And I decided instead that what I needed to be was what people had been with me, which is the favorite uncle. I would go through the point of view that I had and why I had that point of view, because it's still as fresh in my mind today as it was, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. I realize that people need room to be themselves. The way I call what I do now is I'm the bumpers in the bowling alley. You might not get a strike, but you'll never get a gutter ball. And by never getting a gutter ball, you have the confidence to be able to do something wonderful. The first person that I brought in to Nickelodeon was a guy that you know called Scott Webb, who had been a movie channel producer for yep. us. And he made a bunch of promos and he comes and shows them to me. And I go, what the hell are you doing? He goes, well, this is what they wanted. I said, I didn't hire you to do what they wanted. If they knew what they wanted, they wouldn't have hired me and I wouldn't have hired you. Now you better start doing the things that you believe in, not the things that they believe in. And from that day on, he not only was brilliant, but the thing that very few people know about Scott is he was legally blind became the worldwide creative director of Nickelodeon while being legally blind. Why? Because what we gave him the opportunity to do is what he had always imagined rather than what he was told to do. To me, that's our role. Our role is to give people the room to screw up. Because if you let them screw up and they're good, the next time it won't be a screw up, it'll be a home run. Let's move to the way we always end this podcast. This is about math and magic. The two keys that come together to make great marketing and products, and there are experts and icons in both. Your favorite math person? Del Pond. Your favorite magician? The Beatles. Fred Seibert, genius and friend. Thanks, pal. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Here's a couple of things I take away from Fred Seibert. One, when it comes to logos, Fred's philosophy is dominate the space. Two, Fred's secret to great hiring is to determine in the interview whether he wants to spend more time with the candidate. It's such a simple metric, but if he hears them say something intriguing or wants to help them grow, it's an easy decision. Three, on the flip side, one of Fred's keys to success has been figuring out who to work for. In his words, doesn't matter what the job is, work for the smartest person you can find. It's what made him take the leap from radio to television and then to work in cartoons for Ted Turner. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. 
The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair, it's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.